1: So New York City open for vaccines big time. The city opening up uh, all of its vaccination sites to walk-ins. So we're talking about American Museum of Natural History using a room that's home to its famous suspended blue whale. I love that room, but apparently you can go in now and get a vaccine. How cool would it be to
0: get your vaccine (laughs) under the big whale?
1: It's kind of really cool. It's very New York.
0: Yeah. I mean, not worth delaying your vaccine for. Like, I'm glad I got my first shot, but it's pretty
1: cool. But I would have taken a picture. I would have taken a selfie. Uh, J&J, we're waiting to find out uh, that U.S. vaccine panel... Uh, reviewing that J&J COVID-19 shot. It's been halted for 10 days because of rare cases of blood clots. The EU on track to reach its target of getting enough vaccine for 70% of its adults by July. Japan, though, in a tough way, we know it's very sobering in terms of what's going on in India.
0: India. We're seeing uh, record cases this week in India and record deaths as well. Well, here to help us shift through all of this is Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. He joins us now on the phone from New York. Dr. Lusbader. how are you doing on this Friday? Great, guys. Thanks very much. Happy Friday. Happy Friday. Hey, what are you expecting from um, the uh, agencies when it comes to uh, the J&J shot today?
2: I think the uh, J&J vaccine is just too valuable um, to not really distribute widely. You know, clearly there are a very, very small number of patients. Uh, At this point, it's about seven, perhaps eight patients. Uh, all women, uh, some on the birth control pill, who have had some adverse effects. And it looks like those patients tend to have um, a clotting disorder uh, that may affect the cerebral venous sinus, but also may have some other either autoimmune uh, low platelets or clotting disorder. And I think probably what's going to happen is that the uh, vaccine will be released and allowed, the pulse will be stopped, and there will be um, a caution or advisory For patients who do have either clotting disorders or platelet disorders or maybe even on the birth control pill or pregnant, you know, those patients may want to uh, either think twice, think about another vaccine, or just be aware that there is some risk to it. Uh, That's my bet.
1: There's, it's no different than, man, you see drug commercials, right? And they're like, don't take this if you don't, they do a rapid like Mm, (laughs) read of you shouldn't take this medication if you have these underlying conditions or when you're meeting with your doctor and they want to prescribe something, they're like, wait a minute, let me think about what's going on here, whether or not this might not be a drug. I mean, this is quote unquote normal.
2: Everything has a risk and a benefit. And we know for this particular condition, there are uh, patients who do have clotting disorders, uh, when you're giving out 7 million shots, inevitably there's going to be some issues. It's very difficult to exactly tie it when it's that few number of patients. You know, there's enormous benefit to the vaccines and really very low risk. Um, but I think if you're one of those people who either on the birth control pill, you're already at some risk of clotting. Pregnancy, uh, hormonal uh, changes, do raise your risk of clots. So I think patients need to be aware of that. I think if they don't have any other risk factors, it would be reasonably safe to proceed. But unfortunately, nothing in life is totally risk-free. And we know that getting COVID raises your risk of clots. People die from clots Mm -hmm. as a result of COVID. So, in the grand scheme of things, it's much safer and better to be immunized. Um, but if you really have a clotting disorder, you may want to think about one of the other vaccines. We're, we're not sure why, uh, A, if it's really related, and if so, exactly the mechanism. Right. But overall, I think it's very safe and uh, effective.
1: I'm glad you brought up those other two, um, Dr. Lesbader, because, you know, Ian, I think about people are, especially in America, were like, did you get the Pfizer vaccine? Did you get the Moderna vaccine? Did you get the J&J vaccine? Uh, In terms of, I don't recall really any major side effects with Pfizer and Moderna akin to what we're seeing with J&J, but that doesn't mean that J&J is not as good a vaccine, correct?
2: That's correct. Really, all of them seem to be highly effective in preventing hospitalizations and deaths, not 100 percent. Out of the few hundred million vaccines given, there are about 5,000 patients who did get COVID despite the vaccine. You know, again, that's a tiny number compared to the number of, you know, hundreds of millions of people vaccinated. So all of them are highly effective. I would have no concerns about taking any of them, really, including AstraZeneca. That's not yet approved here or J&J. But I do think if you really know you have a clotting disorder, that is something you should talk to your doctor about and try and decide, you know, if you're, which vaccine may be uh, better if you're able to choose. For most of us, we really can't choose. And it's fine because it really has been a very low uh, incidence of any side effects.
0: Let's talk India. You heard uh, us talk a little bit about this, Ray, at the start of your interview, Dr. Bader, because while we are seeing successful vaccination campaigns in several countries, including at home here in the US, we're seeing the opposite play out in India, where we're seeing record deaths this week. Uh, the country also uh, seeing huge demand right now for medical oxygen because of people who are hospitalized. How do we get the pandemic under control uh, here, but also outside of the US? Like, What is the right way to do that? And we only have about a minute left, but then we'll come back with you.
2: Yeah, Tim, that's really the key question. What's happening in India now is really looking like it's going to be a humanitarian crisis. They're having, you know, another wave... Uh, They've only vaccinated less than 10 percent of their population. They have many, many variants. Um, This is really a very worrisome uh, situation, not only for India, but globally. And we can talk more about it. It is really uh, a problem. I think that's under our radar and it needs to be in front of us. This could be a really serious global issue unless it's contained.
1: Mm. God, That makes me worried. Yeah, we know it, though, right? We certainly felt it, and it's definitely played out in the markets a little bit here. Yeah, it has. I just want to get right back to Dr. Ian Lasbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center, still with us on the phone in New York City. I want to continue talking about India, but um, Ian, I want to ask you about someone who just... Uh, sent me a message, a listener, and he says, please ask Dr. Lesbader if he thinks that it is even worth talking about the blood clots in regards to the J&J hmm. uh, vaccine, given the chances are one in two million, essentially. Like, and should- we should
0: note that there was new reporting this, after, uh, this morning by our Bloomberg team that, that showed that the number of cases had gone up to right. 15. Right. So that's still, two
1: in a million?
0: Yeah, two in a million.
1: Two in a point, million. Now. Right. So should we be talking about it?
0: You
2: know, I think the risk, obviously, as the listener, you know, astutely points out, it's it's a very very low risk, and and uh, anything. But should we stop saying low risk?
1: His point was like, should we stop using low risk verbiage, um, and like kind of put the statistic out, right, or or put the statistic out and say, folks, just look at this. You know, I
2: think, you know, in America, in the United States, where everyone is very, uh, you know, litigious and, and uh, tries to minimize risk to the absolute lowest possible uh, risk uh, doable, uh, the reality is it's hard to do that. I think it is reasonable to take a brief pause, really see if there's something more significant, and could this turn into a bigger problem? Based on what we're seeing now, I don't think that's the case, Um uh, look this is America when when problems arise whether they're big or small they're brought to attention I would agree I think it is a minor problem and I think the vaccine is very valuable uh, is it worth bringing up uh, that's uh, that's more of a media question than a doctor question I think
1: okay okay just wanted to like get a little clarification from someone uh, who's listening and, and I think brings up a good point and I know we have to be careful uh, because I agree that I think science statistics as somebody who likes math like it, it tells sometimes a very different picture versus using words that can really sway public Tim. Yeah and, and and that's where
0: well, that's where this comes in with the, the sort of the, the next question. It's it's not just about the developing world. It's also about the developed world. Um, and it's it's about getting to those next tens of millions and even billions of people who, who outside of the US who need the vaccine. Here in the U.S. we do have more than half of American adults having received at least one shot, but but we have to get that that next half and that one shot Dr. Lesbader, that's a solution to that, and it's also a solution to the developing world, right?
2: Absolutely. Yeah. The J&J shot, those one-and-done shots are really critical, and really, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few, and I think we need Hmm. to keep that in perspective, which is what the listener is really saying, that Mm -hmm. that we have to focus on the greatest good and the greatest benefit, and, and there, these vaccines are very helpful. I do think we're doing very well in the United States. Uh, there's less vaccine hesitancy. We're making progress. I think we, we do need globally uh, to work together, and that includes uh, Russia, China, uh, the Western countries as well, to not only help India and Brazil, with supplies, because if that is not contained and if that remains epicenters of viral replication, that's where variants and potentially resistant variants come in. So I do think we've done well. Uh, Other parts of the world could do better in some ways, but I do think we need to strategize It's a global problem how we are going to face it globally and really get a coordinated effort with countries that may or may not be that interested. Eventually, it will affect them. Uh, And I think we need to get uh, a consensus. And it's a good opportunity for the world to work together, whether it's the WHO or others, to say we need more than words. We need
0: action. Dr. Lesbier, I want to end with talking about vaccinating kids. It's something that I know a lot of parents are, are thinking about right now. Uh, even those who are below uh, the age of, of 12, um, how should we think about risk as we enter the summer where parents are vaccinated? and We have about um, 40 seconds left.
2: Yep, today the show has been all about risk. <laughs> Basically, uh, we, we, look, we vaccinate many kids with hepatitis B and a variety of vaccines long before they're ever really going to need them. Uh, kindergartners are not getting hepatitis B, yet it's often a regulation. I do think for this, it is reasonable to do it. We certainly want to get data a little more on safety, but I think it is reasonable to vaccinate young people, certainly below 16, uh, as long as we have convincing data. We do it for a lot of vaccines. And I think the COVID vaccine would be appropriate for that.
1: All right. Going to leave it on that note. Hey, have a good weekend. Be well. Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone from New York City. I have to say those granular questions, though, and I appreciate it from our listener, Um of really kind of understanding what what does it mean, low risk, right? Yeah. (laughs) Because one person's low risk can mean (laughs) something different. Uh, And I think when you start to put the statistics out there, you're like, oh, okay, wait a minute. That I can kind of get my head around.
0: Yeah, we've learned a lot about risk over the last year, right? This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser
3: and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, I got to say, I love this Friday segment of our chat with uh, Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber, because we just get to like take a look at the entire magazine. And this week, it's a double issue, Tim, and there's just so much good stuff.
0: It is. Uh, Move Fast and Break Things is the cover. Joel Weber is the editor of Bloomberg Business Week. Oh, excuse me, fix things. Why did I say break things? Because that's what the joke is. Joel, I missed the joke, Biden's right?
1: calling and he says, please it's don't break Mark, anything. It's not Mark
0: Zuckerberg, it's Joe Biden. Move fast <laughs> yeah, exactly. and fix things. Uh, talk a little- uh, I'm what, just gonna fix this segment for you. Uh, yeah, thank you, I appreciate <laughs> help, help. it. I need all the help I can get. Uh, Joel, but, but one of the reasons I, I, I love to be able to talk to you about this is because you can give us a little idea about how you chose the cover here and, and how you chose the cover story.
4: Well, look, like we're, next week we'll, we'll mark Biden's 100 days, and, and it, for us not to talk about that, it's basically the biggest story in America right now. And when you look at what um, he's accomplished in, in just a remarkably short period of time, um, beating his own goals and then increasing his own goal for number of vaccinations, um, probably on the brink of another goal in terms of uh, reopening schools, uh, passage of a 1.9 trillion dollar stimulus like pretty historic run here to start a, a presidency but as josh wingrove and nancy cook write in the story like everything else is about to get more difficult for him mm-hmm. and that affects not only the american economy but also the shape of things to come for the rest of the world but you know it, it for us not to talk about that story right now i think would have missed that moment we wanted to do it early and The artwork that we use for the cover really speaks to sort of this legacy mode that I think he's kind of put himself in um, where he is going big while he has the opportunity to to do so, which he may not have for long.
1: Talk about difficulties, though, uh, that he is facing. You've got another story uh, that deals with (laughs) launching an airline (laughs) as we're coming out of a pandemic. We're talking about David Nealman. I don't even
4: know if we're coming out of it or where we are, but you know, this <laughs> story crossed. is remarkable. Yeah, yeah. remarkable and published it today. Uh, Drake Bennett um, as writer, uh, Drake's done just some amazing stories about airlines before. And I, I thought um, this is particularly interesting because uh, Neilman is, is really known as a serial entrepreneur in the airline space. This is a space that like n- almost no one attempts to launch something. And this, um, this new uh, project that he's about to, to launch will be his fifth airline. The one that everybody knows him for is JetBlue, of mm-hmm. course, which he you know also happened to, in hindsight, happen at a weird time, which was right basically a, a couple months before September 11th, almost a year before seven, September 11th. Right. And that one worked out, and so here he is again, Uh, going big on effectively a version of that same model, a low-cost carrier. We don't know what the prices or the routes are going to be yet, but we will probably have a glimpse of it here soon enough, um, probably within the next week or so, and it will be flying as soon as as Memorial Day. Um, This is all domestic, so it it really speaks to, you know, there is an opportunity in
0: in every market, and we'll see what this one's like for him, but he's all in on it. There's also a story in this issue by Peter Coy, Stefan Nicola, and David Rocks about the Super League that was going to be, and I mean, if we were talking a week ago, nobody was talking about the Super this, We didn't this, even this, know. We didn't even know about it, right? This happened over the weekend, last weekend, and it's already not happening.
4: Yeah, my, my little uh, phrase for it is the super league supernova. It like, came and went before you even really yeah. like, blinked, right? Yeah. If, you, if you happened to be in a coma for the last week, you would just be like, what happened? Um, so, but you know, I think the story that it, it's rocked Europe, it speaks to sort of this business model that I don't think people appreciated actually maybe how broken it was, where you have these leagues that are basically levered up and, and with debt and don't really have a chance to to like break out of that and and find a way that's profitable and the pandemic has really weighed on them um and you know of course you brought in um some american ingenuity to a european model and it just totally broke down (laughs) ingenuity is one word for it (laughs) yeah (laughs) exactly it it really broke down quickly and what it means for the future of the beautiful game is something that i think we we sort of hint at and You know no one really knows here but it does make you wonder if there could be a more fan-centric model Mm -hmm. going forward and obviously germany has some examples of how that can can look um you know everyone holds the green bay packers in high esteem here it makes you wonder if there isn't more of a fan-based model that could come out of this
1: you know peter atwater over at uh, william and mary has been corresponding back and forth with me and we were talking about what happened in soccer uh and he said it's kind of reflective of the k-shaped recovery of like the owners the top leg you know the fans the the bottom leg and it's just like you've got to understand there's this big gap and people are fighting back on that lower leg you know leg of the k and it's just kind of reflective more broadly uh, of what's going on in the economy
4: yeah it, it, yeah, it is and it also i think mean, funny enough it speaks to like you know shareholder capital where yeah. where you're 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 um you've got You know fans and the fans are what it makes the whole thing work Mm -hmm. like they're the ones who pay for ticket sales that buy the merchandise that fill the stadiums and suddenly when they're the ones that feel like you know they're getting the cold shoulder the whole thing falls apart and i think that that is a really important thing for all of us to kind of keep in mind in, in at this moment in capitalism and the pandemic and everything else.
0: Well, speaking of the pandemic, there's a piece in the issue that really made me think differently about what the other side of the pandemic looks like. It's about herd immunity. It's called Herd Immunity is Humanity's Great Hope. It's Proving Elusive by Robert Langrith and Emma Court. And it, it plays with the idea that the, this, this, this herd immunity concept that we've become so attuned to over the last year might not be the best way for us to measure the end of the pandemic. Yeah, it's kind
4: of a scary article, yeah. to be honest with you. It was terrifying. And, and we, made, yeah. <laughs> we made it the the remarks because I just found, so first story in the issue, because I found it to be um, a rather cold shower. And here we are, um, uh, you know, a year and change into the pandemic, and herd immunity has been this idea that feels like this great hope that everybody is like, you know, look, like vaccines, all, you know, the number of uh, hundreds of thousands and millions of Americans who have uh, had to fight with COVID at this point, like it's all for something. We're gonna get to this herd immunity moment, and you know we'll have this kind of safety blanket. Except that it's turning out that no one exactly knows when what percent of population yeah. needs to have either inoculations or exposure to reach herd immunity. And you know, it started like like a year ago, it was like 30%, maybe 40%. Then suddenly the number became 75 <laughs> or 80%. Now the government isn't even like using those numbers. Like no one knows what percentage of the population needs to have uh, exposure or inoculation in order to reach herd immunity. Yeah. Which basically means that any sense of normality that we think herd immunity might provide is probably kind of distant. And that's what they basically write and the researchers they talk to say like, Put the number down, stop talking about it. It's, right. it's a false reality.
1: We've been quoting the story with the folks that we talked to at Hopkins and all of the medical community that we talk to. We, we don't have time for it, but I'm just going to say there's a story uh, in the magazine about TikTok, and now I understand why I'm not a hit machine. <laughs> the <algorithms laughs> yeah, I'm going to blame
0: TikTok for that.
1: <laughs> leaders haven't gotten <laughs> behind me. Joel Weber, you have a great weekend. Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. Check out the new issue of the magazine on newsstands online on the Bloomberg. This
3: is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic on Bloomberg Radio.
1: All right, so among our most-read stories on the Bloomberg today, it's about the rich Americans' investors who are rather irked by reports that President Biden is planning to announce a big capital gains tax hike. And uh, coming up is someone who's talking with those rich Americans, as only he can do.
0: Yeah, Max Abelson Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) is—I don't know how he does it. I don't know how he does it. How he— He's just Max. Yeah. So uh, let's bring him in. Yeah, Bloomberg News Finance it. Reporter Max Abelson joining us on the phone in New York City. How do you do it? Like, how many times do people oh. hang up, or do people like, oh, it's Max? Yeah. I mean, I'm okay. all,
0: and I have, am I'm, I'm afraid to ask you that question, Max. I've wanted to ask you that, <laughs> but I don't want you to give away every, you know, your secret. He's not going to give it
5: away. I'm so touched. I am so touched. But listen, it, I want you both to know, I mean, it is really not exciting. You know, it, it does entail getting hung up on a lot. Or, or just sending emails that, you know, just go into the void, you know. But that's okay. That's all right. All right. All all right. right. So let's it's talk awesome.
1: about this. I mean, I'm curious how many people hung up. or people are like, yeah, I want to talk to you, Max, about this? Okay. So, so um,
5: when, when Biden, the, the big news yesterday, and it really did hit hard. The idea that, that Biden is going to hike, uh, you know, capital gains to, to 40, you know, above 43. What I immediately did, Carol, is I te- at first I called Charles Myers and he didn't pick up the phone, which is unusual for him, actually. Mm. So I texted and said, are, are you around? And he said, yep, I'm on a plane. And, and I, I, he, he said, even without me asking, my phone has been like ringing off the hook, even on the plane, because everyone's so freaked out. Everyone's mm. so freaked he was out. in the front of the plane. Or was he on he his own in the plane. Front of the plane? He was not in business class. Yeah. not business class. We're talking first class. First
0: class, yeah. Okay. Front of the plane. Front okay. of the plane. Uh, so, so what, what is the overall thought, though, around this? Because we did see the markets take a turn lower, a significant one yesterday, and in fact, uh, saw quite the sell off, the opposite of what's, what's happening today. But the general consensus from the, the wealthy Americans who you spoke to uh, uh, about, about this, they don't think it's the best idea, obviously.
5: That's right. What what people like Charles Myers uh, and Alan Patrickoff told us, uh, and shout out to Devin Pendleton and Suzanne Woolley, who wrote the story with me, what they said is, you know, uh, you can kind of imagine what they'd say, that raising capital gains taxes is bad for the capital markets. Um, In Myers' case, he he wants to raise the, the top marginal rate and the estate tax instead. And what Patrickoff said, uh, Alan Patrickoff, as some of your listeners may know, is the, is the longtime venture capitalist and, and, and a big-time Democratic uh, bungler. What he said is it's kind of a philosophical reversal of what's of what's prevailed for decades. What he says is like the incentives for, you know, investing in companies using capital um, with, a, with a tax rate that, that, that makes it worth their while. That, that's according to them.
1: Well, is there a flip side to this? I mean, this is where I know Mike McKee mentioned a time when I think during the Clinton administration where they raised capital gains taxes and we ended up with a budget surplus and blah, blah, blah. But I, as people, smart people have pointed out to us, you've really got to look at all of what was going on in terms of spending uh, during that time to determine uh, its overall it impact. But what do, I don't know, market watchers, other folks that you talk to for this, Max, say, will it lead to everybody exiting from the stock market?
5: Well, I'll tell you what, Here, one of my favorite things about the piece from Devin and Suzanne is the context that it puts this in, which is that for a long time, tax cuts in this country have mostly helped the very richest people. The tax cuts disproportionately benefit the top 1%. And there's pressure all across the country, not just federally, but in states, to have higher rates. But when that happens, Carol, it's mostly the income tax Mm-hmm. And if, if right. the federal government can, can figure out a way of going after these investment gains, it, it, it will definitely, it gets at why rich people in this country keep getting richer. And that's the context that I think is so, it's so powerful that Devin puts the, uh, put this all in. It really does get to the heart of why the richest 1%, uh, you know, for example, they own half of the equity markets. Right, the equity markets,
1: Carol. Right. And listen, this is why, right, Max? It's not about an income gap. It's wealth gap. Yeah. This is why we've got to kind of focus on that part.
5: I, I really like the data that, they, that, that we wove into the piece. Not, not just, it's not just the top 1% owning 50% right. of, of, of equities and mutual fund shares. It's that then the next nine percent own a third of the equity market. And then the top 10% hold, you know, 88% of shares. All that's to say is that capital gains is, you know, how you tax profits from those investments. So it, it simply um, is an example of the ways The wealthiest Americans, you know, have mostly mostly get the benefit of tax cuts, at least in the past few decades in this country.
0: But Max, is this something that they think is actually going to happen and at a rate of 43.4 percent? As a reminder, right, we have a a Senate that is equal parts Democrats and Republicans. It's really questionable whether someone like Chuck Schumer or Nancy Pelosi in the House and, and Chuck Schumer in the Senate would actually. Want to see something like this? Considering the districts uh, and the states that they represent, so do they think that this is actually what is going to be the outcome? It hasn't even been announced.
5: Well, let's let's check in with Charles Myers, my my uh, interviewee, who's on the, on the plane. You know, in the first class seat, going from from New York to Dallas, when his phone starts ringing. Even Charles, who 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 like like uh, Patrickoff and, and 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 other people, other wealthy people, don't you know think this is a mistake. He also is not worried. He's not worried. He he says that the 43.4% rate won't make it into final legislation. He thinks that sort of Biden had to bring this up because it was part of his campaign, but that he actually doesn't think that that is the rate that will be signed into law. You know, I, I yeah. but, but, but maybe that's optimistic. We, we don't yeah. know. We're going to have to watch and see.
1: Right. We've heard, you know, we've heard that too, Max, that it's like, that was the opening salvo, the opening shot here, and that something might be done, but it's not going to be to this this extreme. Uh, Listen, I guess time will tell, and we still have to wait for the president to officially announce it. I'm just going to put that out there. (laughs) Hey, listen, we have you, and I don't want to let you go without asking you about Wall Street's trillion dollar ESG club. This is also great reporting. What is this club?
5: Well, it's two stories that fit together so nicely, even though it's a pure coincidence. Carol, the, the first story about sort of wealthy individuals dealing with taxes or tax cuts for, for the wealthy. This is a cool story because it talks about the trillion dollar club that that now J P Morgan and Bank of America and Citigroup and Morgan Stanley are in together. Which is to say, over the last month, they've all pledged at least a trillion bucks. In J P Morgan's case, two and a half trillion. Uh, for both, a one and a half trillion. But what our piece gets into is w- where that money will actually go and, and why they might be doing it. And the people that we talked to described, you know, really a combination. On the one hand, they want to please regulators. They want to make shareholders happy. But as the story gets into, and as we explained, they also want to cut their tax bills that this kind of ESG, these, these ESG pledges at the end of the day, definitely save the banks uh, billions of dollars.
0: Yeah. I mean, you're talking about an effective tax rate that uh, drops into the single digits, Max.
5: That number really does stand out. That Bank of America said that in 2020 its tax rate would have been 21%, but thanks to the ESG stuff, it's 5.8. Which you know, 5.8 is I definitely have to take out my my calculator, but it's definitely more than slashing their corporate tax rate in half. It's it's meaningful stuff.
1: Well, and I think. It's an important thing to point out, especially as we see increasingly a lot more money going into the ESG space, and I think there's a big call for understanding exactly what ESG is. It's not greenwashing and so on and so forth, because it does sound like some of the things that they're getting uh, a tax break on isn't maybe necessarily pure ESG. Is that fair?
5: Well, what it's not is purely environmental. A lot of Hmm. the money that they're pledging is green, but... It's not necessarily green. They're also giving substantial sums to, to things that have to do with COVID, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they, they have a whole other, uh, you know, investments in education or affordable housing, health care, uh, economic inclusion. Those, those uh, by, by the way, I should say are Citigroup. You know, the banks themselves say that this money is meaningful and they'll be accountable. Actually, Jane Frazier, Citigroup's new boss, showed up at the White House just this week, and she says, look, I can assure you, you know, whether it's, uh, net zero, which is what the banks are trying to do, or um, you know, closing the gender pay gap, she says that, that, that they're going to back up their, their commitments with, with actual action and, and that they'll be transparent and, uh, and measure the results as well.
0: All right, Max, we're going three for three here. I want to talk a little bit about <laughs> former President You've been busy, man. Trump. Yeah, you have been busy. <laughs> a lot of stories that you have out. Um, the president, this one uh, you just publishing uh, a, a little over an hour ago, the president discussed, former president, excuse me, discussing a relocation to New Jersey golf club for the summer. You write that uh, and along with uh, Mark Niquette, three months after leaving the White House for Mar-a-Lago, Donald Trump is discussing plans to swap Florida for New Jersey for a few months. Is this just about the hot weather in the summer at Mar-a-Lago?
5: Well, first of all, I am honored, and I really mean honored, to have three stories to talk to you about. It feels like <laughs> my first ever hat trick with you all. But, yeah, you know, I, I think that uh, my colleague Martin Niquette at Bloomberg and I think this is Insider is reporting it as well, that Trump has talked to his pals about, you know, hightailing it out of Mar-a-Lago and, and going to Bedminster, where I have been, incidentally. For my reporting on mm-hmm. uh, on, on that business Week profile years ago, it was, it was very nice. Look, I'm, I think Florida actually gets really hot in the summer. If I'm if I'm not mistaken, I think that's <laughs> what so I've like heard. Down there, <laughs> yeah, you got to get out of town.
1: Yeah, listen, you are constantly talking with the movers and the shakers, the players when it comes to investing and finance. I mean, what's the tone right now? Uh, Whether it's getting back everybody to the office, whether it's the outlook, you know, more upbeat versus not. We just talked with uh, one of our regulars, uh, NYU Langone, and you know, we're worried about those India numbers, we're worried about the vaccine rollout. I'm just curious, what are some of the the takeaways that you're getting from those folks that, you know, you do either send messages to or catch up to well, they're on probably, you know, a plane, private jet, first class, what have you?
5: Well, first of all, I'm glad you mentioned those numbers in India. I saw huh. those, too. They are terrifying. I mean, India, in my, I'm, I'm just a layman observer here, but my understanding is that India made it so long without without yeah. these rates mm-hmm. spiking like this. It's, it's heartbreaking. Uh, but you know what? incidentally I'm sort of glad that comes up in a conversation about wall street because I think it's important to put wall street profits into context mm-hmm. of great pain that people are feeling all around the world and and as my colleagues and I have reported you know wall street had a banner year in 2020 enormous profits and in the first quarter of this year You know, the banks set records, set profit records. So, you know, I I, I think there's anxiety uh, and discomfort on Wall Street like there is everywhere because people are human and this is a scary time. But to put into context, you know, Wall Street had a wonderful year last year and they're having an excellent year again this year.
0: Well, take us us back, Max, over the last year and how, uh, you know, really 13, 14 months and, and how your reporting has changed and how what you've heard from these movers and shakers, from these billionaires has changed, how it's gone from how they felt at the beginning of the pandemic to how they've really adapted right now and, and how they've made the decisions for their family offices, for their staffs, and, and where they're living? How would you generalize the conversations?
5: Well, I'm, I'm about to, to come, I think, join you both in the Bloomberg newsroom uh, in, in a week or two, you know, now that I've had my two shots, and uh, it's, it's going to be a couple of weeks. And and I was thinking about how dramatically different it was when, when we left. You know, I, I obviously didn't know that I'd be gone for more than a year, but right. I remember then... A, a, a real general, it, it right. really felt at, at that moment right. like it could genuinely be a financial crisis. A financial crisis, not, bigger perhaps, in 2008, but this time not caused by Wall Street. The way, right. the way, that, the way that the banking industry genuinely had a, a, a hand in what Very, happened in 2008.
1: Definitely it, different. It seemed that like it was just going to happen. I'm in my
0: car. I'll turn on the radio
5: hey, How about you let me drive?
0: Oh, no, 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 no
5: Who's gonna drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving
0: Drive
4: on Excuse me, I want to drive Just
5: drive, so Just drive, baby you drive It's the question that drives
4: us we Drive we take a take the break We can reach our destination please
5: is the drive to the close that funky music will drive us till the dawn on Bloomberg Radio
1: All right, check it out everyone just about 10 minutes left in today's trading day let's get to the drive to the close back with us is Eric Clark portfolio manager at Rational Dynamic Brands Fund his fund by the way continuing to be just about all of its peers this year over the last five years over the past five years up on average 20% annually putting his fund in the 96th percentile according to our Bloomberg data he's back with us on the phone from San Diego how are you Hey, Carol, how are you? Doing well, doing well. Good to have you here with us. We're going to jump right into it because we've got a list of companies that we want to talk to you about. And first up, we want to talk to you a little bit about Nike because we just did the story about Simone Biles. She's moving on from working with uh, Nike and she's going to go with Gaps Athleta Brand. Does news like this impact how you think about a company at all in terms of who they're aligned with, what celebrities? Because we know celebrities can drive sales big time
3: yeah absolutely. I, I mean, not really. Uh, you know, Nike <laughs> okay. has so much going for them, uh, and and we haven't even seen a return for most athletics. So uh, congratulations to Athleta, because I think that's an amazing brand that's putting the you know kind of putting pressure on Lulu, but from a Nike perspective, no, I don't see it as as a problem at all.
0: Hey, what about when it comes to uh, a company like American Express? Uh, The company reported the earnings and said that revenue for the first quarter missed the average analyst estimate. The company CEO said that we view 2021 as a transition year where we're focused on making investments to rebuild growth momentum in our core business. We fired up our card acquisition engine, adding 2.1 new proprietary cards during the quarter. Shares are lower on the day today. Does that mean you're buying more?
3: Uh, it is definitely on the buy list, for sure. I mean, with MasterCard, Visa are our two two biggest holdings. So we've chosen to, to make the bigger bets in those names that don't have the credit exposure. But uh, American Express, if you believe in the spending mm. renaissance to come with $2 trillion in, in savings to be spent over the next couple of years, in part, then American Express should do really well. They're just, you know, they have the T&E budgets with the, with the travel side that's a bit of a laggard, but... Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's it's a cheap stock and way cheaper than MasterCard Visa, but uh, MasterCard Visa seems to just be in a little better position, you know, short term. Hey,
1: can I go back though to Nike versus Gap? Like, Is there a point where you look at kind of a brand that maybe has been beaten down, is going through a transition and that you say, I mean, Gap is up about 68, 69% this year, but is there something in a company, in a turnaround where you start to say, okay, this is a brand that I think has got some legs here?
3: Yeah, I mean w- w- every December we do our brands index up- upgrade mm-hmm. and we kind of look through that and and it's not only just great brands, it's what brands are kind of in turnaround mode and we added we got rid of Gap 2 or 3 mm. years ago
1: you did.
0: and
3: we added Gap and L Brands back and mm. even Under Armour back to the index not necessarily because they were, you know, they were all fully executing but because they just got crushed and we thought the prices of those companies were at least much more attractive and, and I still think Athleta and Old Navy is worth more than the entire gap market cap. So I, I think there's still a lot of value there.
1: Okay. But you don't own it or you do own it? You do own it. We don't we don't we don't, we
3: don't own it currently, no. Okay. No.
1: Hey, one of the stocks that you love, well, there's a a list
0: of stocks that you you love, a big one. Chipotle, we spoke with the company's CEO, Brian Nickel, yesterday. What did you make of the company's most recent earnings report? And also their serious ambitions to more than double their footprint uh, of restaurants getting close to 6,000.
3: I I mean, the, the smaller storefronts, I mean, COVID forced companies to think differently to survive. And Chipotle came up with this smaller format with the Lanes that kind of go in, grab and take uh, methodology. And, and that allows them to just expand all over the country. And that's just the beginning. I mean, to me, I still think they have a lot of international growth, but they're going to they're gonna use their international opportunities first. But, uh, I mean, there was a great quarter. The stock has been down for uh, probably down 5% since they reported the quarter. That's definitely on the ad list. And it's just one of those, you know, it it was hot going into the number and the numbers are terrific. Their comp store sales are great. The digitals is great. There's just not a lot bad to say other than maybe, you know, people just moved on after a good number. But they they have so many opportunities to expand and they have ample labor, probably better uh, economic rates for their retail space because they're a great anchor tenant now. So the big the big restaurant brands, are are having a field day probably with store growth because there's a lot of opportunity to grow
1: hey you are focusing big time on luxury luxury is back and so talk to us a little bit about that Louis Vuitton among the names that you think investors if they don't have it in their portfolio probably should
3: what we do I mean they 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 had a great quarter I mean you know we've talked about RH a lot Mm -hmm. they had a great quarter last time And, and you know let's face it if you have a great job, and you make good money, and you have a good net worth, you're not as recession recession and slowdown um, uh, dependent as as certain other consumers. So there's between the, the China economy coming back, and they're a big consumer of luxury goods in general. Hermes had a great number. So it's, you know, Ferrari is getting back into it with with uh, they don't don't struggle from a demand perspective, they struggle from a supply perspective. And you're talking two or three hundred thousand dollar entry points. So that category just seems to be really right for this for this market environment.
0: Hey, what about Shake Shack and thinking about the way that consumers are starting to spend money again and and venture out again as they're vaccinated? Um, How do you think about Shake Shack on the other side of this pandemic and even the changes that the company is making during the pandemic?
3: Well, they're they're using technology to their advantage, mostly because they had to. And, I mean, they are all about the gathering spot with their really, you know, aesthetically pleasing stores. And, you know, they're a little bit slower to come back, but they have such international. I mean, rarely do you see a 4 or $5 billion restaurant Mm -hmm. company that's got a ton of exposure in, you know, china and dubai and you know so it's it's an iconic brand that started in new york and got so popular and it still feeds into that chipotle kind of food with integrity theme started by danny meyer mm-hmm. has the, the ingredients at the core so it, it definitely suits a lot of the wellness and the health the, the the healthy lifestyle and the aesthetics higher price points but i do think they have margin uh, you know they have uh, good pricing power i'm a huge fan of uh, of the store and of the food. And I don't eat fast food very much, but that tends to be my choice. And I still think it's a $10 billion market cap company. So its I, I still think it can double from here over the next couple of years.
1: Hey, just got about a minute or so left here. Uh, Apple, Google, these are in your portfolio. Uh, these are top holdings. They're going to report uh, next week. What are you watching out for? Could there be a catalyst uh, that you're anticipating that might send the stock higher or lower in your view?
3: Well, I, in some ways it could be a, uh the comps are just very high um you know a lot of the companies that thrived last year have some pretty good comps this year and aside from that i just don't see any reason not to have them be big holdings the 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 advertising with you know you saw it in snap uh it's going to be great for google it's going to be great for facebook Um, I I love the stocks and if they do happen to fall because of the market or the earnings I'll be the first one in there buying more
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right good to know listen great to catch up with you as always Eric Clark he's portfolio manager at rational dynamic brands fund on the phone from San Diego as I said he is a top performer beating most of his peers uh, over the past five years and up on average 20 percent annually putting his fund in the 96 percentile according to Bloomberg data